applied first for the Defense Against the Dark Arts post, is that correct? Yes. But you were unsuccessful? Obviously. Welcome back to another great edition of Novel Ideas of the Illiterati. Today, we are talking about a story that was full of mayhem, full of forcing people to believe things that aren't true, uh, a lot of authoritarianism, a lot of priving into other people's privacy. So today, we're obviously talking about George Orwell's 1984. What do you think about George Orwell's 1984, Andrea? Excellent novel, and not the one we're here to talk about, Michael. <laughs> we're back with Harry Potter 5. The big boy that we chose to do when Michael was moving. It was really smart. <laughs> it was great. Michael's not stressed out at all. <laughs> Michael didn't have to delay uh, this at all. <laughs> I didn't have to delay it. Everything's on time. I'm still... Not, I totally have the next one edited and ready to go for this weekend. Uh, you know I'm what? not stressed out. <laughs> I really am not trying to throw shade either because I am mismanaging our social media. So it's fine. We're doing our best. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to two crazy kids talking about books and films. Um, yeah, so yeah, Order of the Phoenix, basically George Orwell in the Wizarding World. Pretty much. That's my thoughts. That, that's it. I'm done. That's all I'm saying. Um, it's going to be our no, shortest but, uh, one yet, folks. <laughs> <laughs> the shortest one for the longest book. But uh, yeah, so uh, if you want to go ahead, I don't have too much to say. I mean, the book is, I, I like the way that the book was written. Um, she does a lot better with some imagery and her dialogue seems to be getting better at this point and whatnot. But I don't have like too much to complain. The only thing I have to complain about the book after I, j especially because, you know, I just told you to go ahead, but I'm going to just steal it back. She does a lot of said my modifiers which kind of got annoying, yeah. um, at least She's for me. She's always done that. Like, she has, but it's like at, by this point, like this is middle of high school. I feel like it's not needed anymore. Like it's kind of better for like really young kids because kids aren't able to grasp tone as well when they're when they're young. But I feel like hopefully by high school, kids are better to gra better at grasping it. But Good Lord, if she could write coolly one more time after said, <laughs> I was going to burn the book. There, no wonder why there was a bunch of Harry Potter book burnings back in the day. Well, that was because but. of Satan, but very close. <laughs> oh. <laughs> my, my feelings on this book, I've always liked this one and never understood why it got so much shade thrown at it, especially because to me... This one gets more into people's psychology. That might be part of it. Mm -hmm. And Harry actually becomes a more interesting character to me. And I know a lot of the hatred and... Well, not necessarily hatred, but a lot of the criticism comes because of Harry's very angsty emotional state. And people refer to it as Caps Lock Harry. But honestly, I think it really makes sense the way it was used. I mean, we're already dealing with a teenager, and at the start of the book, he is back in his very abusive household. Cedric Diggory just died, 
and he's kind of having to go through all of this alone. At the same time, Dumbledore's told all of his friends not to write to him. And when you actually put yourself in that position, I think it makes perfect sense that he lashed out the way he did. Yeah, rereading this, I appreciated it a lot more. Um, And especially as someone who has dealt with death of a close friend at a young age, I, I was able to connect a lot with how Harry felt when when it's like hard to actually really talk about death and then sometimes people are trying to pry into it too much and you don't want to talk to them like when he's first at the uh the first meeting for the the da and they're like trying to ask him about the death and he's like i'm not going to go into this yeah. i can totally understand that and have been there and feeling completely alone even though he has he technically like he has people around him but he still feels super alone because no one's able to really connect and in the book, at least, what I think actually made it worse was here he had Cho that also dealing similar with Harry, but they weren't able to emotionally share with one another. And so it just, in a way, it made him feel even more alone and disconnected. The movie didn't really go into that at all, but... Yeah, that's true. There's a lot, I mean, there's a lot that's left out of the movie. There's a lot of little stuff that enhances the story. But I think the movie did pretty much as good as you can with a almost 900-page book. Yeah, that's what struck me. I love a lot of the little details in this novel. And I didn't realize how fast the movie was in comparison until I watched them, you know, so closely together. And, I mean, yeah, I'll think it, I think it's effective. They made a very lengthy book into a concise, very feature film sort of format. And that works for them well. I think it was a bit formulaic to me. What they chose to cut out, it worked though. I'll, I'll, I'll give them that. Massive props for... And like one thing that's really smart is how they would take all of these little snippets from the newspaper to tell a lot about the story in a short amount of time. Such as Dolores getting more power at Hogwarts. And I thought that was clever. I mean, it's almost montage but it worked in order to convey a lot of information quickly. Watching the film, I didn't feel like there was information really missing, just the extra stuff in the book that really enhances some character things. But the story itself was told very well. I mean, the lady who plays Umbridge did a fantastic job. I wanted to punch her the entire time, but that's exactly what Umbridge is supposed to be. So Yeah, she was really good. Massive props to J.K. Rowling, because that is one of the most effective villains of all time and yes the actress i wish i knew her name played her so well and the outfit choices they had for her with like the pink cardigans and that one really feathery one when she visits hagrid it's so perfectly over the top i like the little touch where she's like leaving and it like smelling the air and it smells bad so she pulls out perfume and tries to make it smell nice and dainty because that's what she wants to be seen as, but she's clearly the most overbearing person ever. And But fantastic character. I would hate to know her in real life. She's like that manager that says they won't micromanage you, but then does just that. <laughs> and to me, so other really great things about this novel, I adore Fred and George in this one. This is where the love really took off because of all of the hijinks and I love all those little details. That's one thing I really wish made it to the movie was how the professors so actively were not helping her. 
Yeah, um, I was thinking about that as well. And they could have. Yeah, like it's it's a nice touch in the book when it was. I, I think like it's basically mentioned. Uh, McGonagall could have easily helped Dolores Umbridge, and she acts as though she doesn't know what to do. And she's like, "Oh, I, I think yeah. I think it'd be best left up to you." It's great how much everyone hates Umbridge except for. Filch and the Inquisitor Squad, or whatever they're called. I can't, I just blanked out. Inquisitorial, yeah. And referencing the Inquisition with her whole reign of terror was brilliant. And I've already expressed my disappointment at the lack of Peeves, but that's one of my favorite bits of the book where McGonagall's passing Peeves as he's unscrewing this chandelier and Harry says he swore he saw her muttering out of the corner of her mouth. It unscrews the other way. Yeah, that's a great. Point in the book it's fantastic because <laughs> like mcgonagall for pretty much all the other books is like so strict and kind of uptight but then she's also sort of playing i mean she's not fully uptight i mean in the first book she's she what gets harry onto the quidditch team and things like that but she always seems to be the the adult she tries to have a balance of everything and let's talk about snape mm-hmm. because this is where my dislike of snape really kind of comes to a head I know he's a lot of people's favorites, whatever. He's so dreamy. But whatever. <laughs> Listen, Snape really cemented himself for incel status because he is so ridiculous. He didn't even bond with Harry over shared trauma of bullying. And no matter what people say, they think it's romantic. It's not. Also, if a guy is so infatuated with you that he is an absolute shit to your child after you're gone, there's just no excusing it. Yeah, I think, though, Snape is more of always a dick to Harry in order to be on the Malfoy's good side. He can't really let that guard down. It's his spy thing. That's just how I've always viewed it. I get what you're saying, like... He couldn't get over Peter making fun of him and stealing his girl or whatever, Um, though Lily wasn't really interested in him in that way. But I always felt he was constantly a dick to Harry in order to always play to the Death Eater's side. Well, and that would have made sense when people could see him, but... Once Harry knows he's in the Order, he knows he's spying for them, and he's aware... I mean, I know he does not know Snape's ultimate mission and all of the planning with Dumbledore that takes you know place at this time, but when he's giving Harry occlumency lessons, and then he just kicks him out, I don't know, there's a lot of disregard that isn't done just for show. That's fair. I will say, though, I see him as, like, you know, a uh, person who just gets into character and doesn't leave it type, like, you know, a fucking Daniel Day-Lewis type, or just, like, anyone who's, like, a deep, coveted spy, they try not to break character unless they really, really have to, which is basically the end of Harry Potter 7. But, I mean, I agree, too, that Snape shouldn't have been so much a dick, but at the same time, he's an extremely private person, and Harry... Like the, the difference between the book and the film is Harry purposely went to go into Snape's memories, which also would like to make a point because the the, the, the pen don't they just show whatever last memory you put into them? Because don't they usually keep me- like 
if I remember correctly, they keep memories and files and they put the file into the pensive and then you go into that memory. So if Harry just went into whatever last memory Snape pulled out and put into it, is he always just leaving that one out? That's kind of really weird. Is he just that distraught by it that he's always going back to that memory and that's part of his issues is he can't get over shit? I'm thinking that given that the lessons with Harry came up at this time, he was probably thinking about his relationship with Harry's father. And from what Dumbledore always said, the pensive is there to help you sort out your thoughts. So he might have been trying to work through it and kind of really analyze his emotions. But that would make sense to me. That makes sense to me, too. Um, I like that instead of what I had in my head. <laughs> also. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, no, 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 I'll admit it. I like, I like your, your thought better on it than mine. Mine was just like, oh, he's just always looking at that one what the fuck man but um also the, but since i since i mentioned the pensive it's in the book it's it's really weird to me how when harry goes into the memory he's able to basically hang out with his father lupin sirius and peter pettigrew though sirius wasn't really around them at the time so he wouldn't know what they were talking about so what is the extent of people's memories in this world? And basically there's things that technically they don't remember or were even around that you can go into and examine. It's kind of weird to me. Well, Harry had mentioned that he knew he couldn't go too far from Snape because it was his memory. And so he was relieved when Snape went out to the Great Lawn by where his father and gang were hanging out. Um, it sounded to me like he was within earshot, maybe. Also, I think it's one of those things where if you're near people that make you nervous or you're just aware of, you're probably listening to what they're saying. Right. Also, another thing that I was thinking about, we know how malleable people's memories are. And how people can create false memories and stuff like that i wonder how often in this world that the like the people are pulling out false memories and are just now dealing with false memories like like people do in real life that's the next book michael oh shit you're right <laughs> modified memory oh fuck you're right i forgot about that <laughs> sorry no you're good i'm being dumb but i could see how someone's memory of an event they saw as very traumatic and not to say it's not but i'm sure he might be remembering it in a very exaggerated sense right but now that i've belittled snape's trauma not intended sorry <laughs> no get over yourself snape come on be a man grow up can i just say dumb thought but when harry's doing the occlumency lessons and snape is always asking him did you practice i just had the thought of that's He's lying to him like we used to lie to our orthodontists about wearing our retainers. No, I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. I wear it every night, I promise. I it's like, really? It doesn't fit and you're lisping. I brush my teeth five times a day. I floss nine times a day. Brush your teeth, it's important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't want your teeth to look like Sirius's in Harry Potter 3. Again, magically fixed. I mean, yeah, there's magic, but just saying. I mean, it's the magic. He prettied him up. It's the magic of Gary Oldman. 
you know, the more he, the more he looks like Gary Oldman, the more beautiful of a man he becomes. And the more in love we all are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I made this note because, you know, I'm editing these and so I'm able to easily look at what we were, what we've talked about in the past. And we mentioned, I think in the third one about how we didn't know what happened to Buckbeat. And it turns out Buckbeat's just chilling in Grimwald's place. The book mentions it. I had that thought when I was reading, and I thought, damn. I'm like, that fucking sucks. (laughs) 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 Like, this majestic beast that clearly needs to roam lived in the forest is now stuck inside a house. is a magical beast that needs to roam. (laughs) I mean, you're right. He can roam wherever that man, wherever he pleases. But yeah, I I was reading that and wondered how the hell I forgot that Buckbeak's just chilling in this narrow ass home. And I actually think I might have, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I might have sarcastically said that Buckbeak wouldn't just be in this narrow ass home, but there he is. How he's stuck in a really tiny place. That's pretty <laughs> messed up stuff. You know, animal rights aren't a thing. No, nope, we have a lot of mopey souls under one roof. Hermione gets pissed off about the house elves, but doesn't get pissed off about Buckbeak being stuck inside of a tiny, tiny space. What the fuck, Hermione? Selective outrage much, Hermione? <laughs> Speaking of Hermione, I noticed uh, when, when she first comes onto the, onto the, into the film, for some reason she's extremely out of breath. Like, for that first scene that she's in, Grimwald's place, she's extremely out of breath. And maybe she was just extremely busy that day, running around. But it was just really weird to me, because she shouldn't have been out of breath. She was just waiting for Harry to show up, like everyone else. But what can you do? Nothing, man. No cardio. Mm -hmm. So, favorite parts of the novel for me... Okay, again, I understand a lot of what they compressed. When I say I wish I would have seen it, I'm not saying I would have made a better movie, but I really wish I would have seen the version of them visiting Mr. Weasley at St. Mungo's and then running into Neville and this horrible, tragic exchange with his family. Yeah, I'm with you on that because I think that's a great way of them learning about his situation because no one else really knows about his situation but Harry... And I feel like they just sort of randomly know in the movie. Well, Neville tells Harry when they're looking at that picture of the order that Sirius gives him, which I actually thought was interesting in the novel. It's Mad-Eye who gives Harry the picture of the original members of the Order of the Phoenix. And Harry's wondering why he thought it would be such a nice gift, because it's really kind of freaking him out that all these people he cares about are in this room, and he's learning about all the people that came before them and what horrible fates they had. And also he just saw Cedric die. And then when Sirius gives it to him in the movie, it's a bit more of a touching scene. And yeah, the Neville's pointing at his parents and they're talking about what happened, which I understand, you know, in the constraints of time, that was a faster way. But when his mother gives him that empty bubblegum wrapper and he just puts it in his pocket, oh, God, Neville, you you special, beautiful boy who deserves more love than he gets. Also, Neville's grand, 
grandma is kind of a dick. It's like when they're at St. Mungo's, she's nice, but he mentions in the book how she's always telling other people how basically pathetic he is in comparison to his father. Yeah. And it's really messed up. And no wonder why the kid has self-esteem issues. Don't treat your kids or grandkids like that, people. We're better than this. It's something I've heard um, that said it's usually your family members that are your first bullies. And I think Neville's a really good example of that. Neville's, honestly, rereading this, I love Neville so much more. He's a great character, and I love that he's so important and just kind of in the background for most of it. It, yeah. it makes it something special in terms of like a narrative form. And I like that when they got busted, one of Harry's thoughts is Neville was getting so good and he was so proud of him for really getting yeah. confidence and just being better at magic. Which also, because he, because he says that later on when they're all going to like help him to get break into the ministry, uh, the, the mysteries of the ministry... He mentions how Ginny, Luna, and Neville were the three he wouldn't pick. And I'm like, that's kind of not cool. Because like, he kind of was talking about how good Ginny was getting and how great Neville was. Neville was picking up things pretty quickly. Really, Harry? They're not your first picks when they're learning your stuff really quick. But Yeah, I mean, you know. Neville's doing great. Ginny had just done that bat bogey hex to get them out of Umbridge's office, which, again, going back to this running thread of the movies making Ginny less awesome, it was just Ron feeding them some of Fred and George's puking pastels. That didn't have the same impact for me. I mean, they gave her that moment of um, doing the reducto spell on all of the falling orbs, I guess, but still, that was a really cool moment for Ginny. Unfortunately, movie Ginny kind of sucks, and it's a real shame. And also, I like in the in the book, like you know, she's kind of over Harry. In the book, she's got a boyfriend, but in the movie, they she's always like looking at him from afar, and yeah, whatnot. There's that scene where she's staring longingly as they're all exiting, and you know he's walking over to Cho. Mhm. Mm it's like oh, it's like no. At that point, she had a boyfriend and was kind of like over Harry, and it was great because. They mentioned, what is it? I think it was either Hermione or Ron mentioned that she's willing to actually talk to Harry now because she's over him. And yeah. I was like, that makes her character stronger instead of she's always constantly in love with him. <laughs> um, and another thing I really loved about this novel is when they're sitting in Dumbledore's office after Sirius has died. And... Dumbledore's explaining everything to Harry. Honestly, I think that's the really rough emotional part because obviously Sirius dying is just tragic, but the whole aftermath and Dumbledore's crying and admitting to him that he made a big mistake. And then, oh God, when Harry goes back to his room and finds the two-way mirror Sirius gave him and realizes he never used it, that, that fucked with me. The book does a great job of representing loss in, su in such a way. Like This whole book is basically depression and dealing with loss and more loss and pain and suffering. And I really appreciate it in comparison to the ones before it. It's not 
as fun of a book, but it's a lot deeper and it's necessary, I guess. It's a ne- it's, it was a necessary book in order to make the characters grow up. That, no, they're not right all the time. Not even the adults that they look up to are right all the time. And then there's other adults that are just sort of power hungry and don't care what's right and what's wrong. They're just going to do whatever they want. So I I liked, I liked this book a lot. I like it more than I did when I was a kid. Yeah, I agree. And for me, it also kind of stops that trend of Harry goes on these hijinks, gets into trouble, gets rewarded. Everything ends up well because this time Harry goes on a limb, plays the hero, like Hermione says, and Sirius ends up dead. And it sucks because all this time you're thinking, oh, Harry's getting away with too much. When he finally doesn't, you're like, oh, shit, well, I didn't mean for that to happen. It's like, no, no, you you killed off the best character, like the one character that gave Harry any sort of family. Well, I'd argue that the Weasleys and Hermione are really family as well, but, you know, someone that really connected to his parents, I guess, gave him that sort of bridge that divide between their deaths and someone that's living that was a close friend but uh there was a couple oh go ahead um actually i want to read a passage regarding this because i thought this was a really great way of a really great piece of writing after sirius's death so this is after sirius gets pulled into the veil and Mm -hmm. harry's struggling because he doesn't think he's actually dead And it says, But some part of him realized, even as he fought to break free from Lupin, that Sirius had never kept him waiting before. Sirius had risked everything, always, to see Harry, to help him. If Sirius was not reappearing out of that archway when Harry was yelling for him as though his life depended on it, the only possible explanation was that he could not come back. That he really was. Yeah. I... That conveyed it perfectly. Especially after... All of these novels of seeing Sirius, you know, breaking out of Azkaban, coming to find him. All of the last book when we were talking about how he's hanging out in Hogsmeade, you know, eating rats just to be close to Harry because he thinks his life is in danger. It was a really touching tribute to him. Yeah. Pour one out for Sirius. Seriously. Oh, God, that was um, not intentional. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We're leaving it then because it was great. <laughs> I loved it. It was great. Seriously. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to argue, I think this book does manage to keep enough silliness, especially while Umbridge is around. You've got Fred and George keeping the mood light like the heroes we need um and then in the middle of all this like fraught action and tension when they get to the ministry harry steps up to the telephone and they say state your name and your purpose and the badge they print says harry potter rescue mission (laughs) i loved that so much (laughs) i loved that i was like harry you need to keep that badge for the rest of your life um he he won't i do wish the move that killed Sirius. Yeah. Oh, you're right. <laughs> Sorry. Well, 
That can be his uh, le- looking at the same memory over and over again in a pensive. There you go. But th- there, there were a few things that I did like that the movie did. But like I, I thought I just like little clever things. Um, I liked the overbearingness of the decrees that the ministry was putting out. It was um, it was comical how much they were doing. Like I think it like got into like the hundreds, whereas the book really only had like four or five decrees that were really made and it was just great with filch and the little parts where filch is um like basically snacking and watching them trying he's trying to figure out how to get into the da meetings and whatnot a great way to shorten some of what was going on in the books and like um, him precariously swinging as he's hammering the edict into the wall. Yeah, it's just great. Filch is a fun little character when used right. Because there's sometimes in the previous movies where I felt like they tried to make him funny. It didn't really work for me, but it really worked in this film. What was it else? The uh, I did find it stupid the, that they changed the sound for apparating. When Fred and George are apparating in the house it's sort of like a plopping sound instead of like a big crack which is what it's supposed to be and it's really weird too because that whole when harry gets there sort of like everything leading up to grimwald's and him in grimwald they sort of made it very suspenseful and kind of spooky so it was weird to me that they used like a plopping sound instead of the crack to like add to the intensity and 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 just like throwing you off but that was the uh, sound designer's fault. So, and I really liked um, for the scenes for the oculomancy. Uh, if, if that's that's how you pronounce it, right? Oculomancy. They chose to do those scenes handheld, which gave it a very anxiety-driven feeling because the camera was shaking a little bit in the scenes with Harry and Snape, and sort of adding to the importance of it. Because usually, like handheld for action adventure films are are used specifically for just action sequences. But since they use it for this thing where it's basically a guy trying to break into your mind and whatnot, using a, using handheld helps create this direness to get something done and the importance of the occupancy and that it was something that Harry needed to learn. So I personally liked that my little looks at film filmography and whatnot so yeah that's a cool i didn't notice that um other things i think were really cool i love the way that they designed the ministry and the wizengamot the wizengamot looked just as imposing as harry described it when he's on trial and then the thestrals look so cool these like skeletal ass black horses are they actually in mythology or did jk rowling make them up i think she made them up but don't quote me on that yeah um also because we talked about it before Sirius and the fire does look a lot better in this one yes i was about to mention that i'm so glad they fixed it because <laughs> the fucking logs are were obnoxious it didn't look right like his head was like poking up at a weird angle i hated it <laughs> But yeah, the uh, the fire looks better. Yeah, I'm glad they fixed that. It, it fits more to what actually J.K. wanted it to be. 
I hope she said something to the director and like forced them to like make make sure that was right because it looked like shit in the fourth one. Or I just think anyone watching it probably thought it looked like yeah. shit. Oh, one random thing I thought was really dumb. When Harry gets the howler right after doing the Patronus after the Dementor attack, mm-hmm. the letter says confidential on it, but then it's a howler, so it immediately starts speaking loudly enough that everyone in the room can hear it. Yeah, that's very true. And I'd also like to point out in the movie how stupid it is when they leave Private Drive that they're basically flying right around muggles. It's really stupid and yeah, in not the inconspicuous book, at all. I'm pretty sure they stayed up high. Yeah. Yeah, they on purpose. Mm-hmm. There was no, like, we're trying to be sneaky. No, we're going to have, like, this cool scene. I mean, I I get it. It probably does look, look cooler to have them do that. But literally, they flew in front of a, a ship full of people, and they got as close to the windows as possible. And Parliament? And yeah, it's like, this is not what they do they're supposed to stay hidden and moody, moody the entire time in the book is talking about how they need to be super secret and whatnot and i think don't they keep harry invisible too like harry's in the invisibility cloak or something they put i can't remember if they put a spell on him where it was just the invi- no they did that that spell that he said felt like the egg was going over his head yeah. because the cloak would have probably flown off but yeah they they did make themselves invisible and that's part of the issue with what felt was very feature film basic to me was, oh, don't forget we're in England. Let's show you Parliament <laughs> and local haunts we have so you know where we are. Yeah, it's stupid. Know. <laughs> you know, for the most part, the movie did it well. They could have made it longer if they wanted to. It wasn't as long as Chamber of Secrets, so they could have done more, but... yeah. At the same time, I do kind of like how concise they told the story. It doesn't feel like a two and a half, well, it's not two and a half hours. It's like, what, two and hours and ten minutes, if you don't count the credits. It's fine. It's well done. Um, I will say, I, I still think Harry should have ended up with Luna. That's just that's just what I'm saying. I think, I think they would have been... Same. I think they would have been good for each other. Well, at least um, the way the movie's... T- you know, treat Luna because mm-hmm. Ginny's cool in the books. I still think it's weird he ends up with the one that looks like his mom. But when I was watching this with my lovely Discord friends, we were all really into the Harry and Luna relationship because she also understands him. I mean, yeah, you know, they're bonding over the Thestrals when no one else can see them. And I think that's part of you know, like we talked about Harry feeling very isolated from everyone else. Now he's seeing these creatures no one else can see. And Luna comes in and really is one of the main things that makes him feel less lonely because she's like, I can see them too. Also, you know, my father and I have always believed in you. And, you know, Luna and Hermione really pull him out of his rut when Hermione comes in like a badass and coerces Rita Skeeter to write this article which was just such a cool moment for Hermione too. Like I took a picture of that page when they're sitting there and they're about to get started writing and Hermione's just like, 
I just imagined her sitting there like some sort of mob boss and she's just like, fire away then, Rita, and like fishes her cherry out of her drink. And you're just like, okay, Hermione, I see you. <laughs> no, I, Hermione did a great job of organizing things in this book. She, uh, she was definitely the ringleader of it all, trying to make sure that they didn't make mistakes and making things work. I love like the little touches where... What was it like the galleon? I think that was fun for like the DA meetings, which they didn't really do too much with, but in the book, and they didn't show it at all in the movie. Yeah. But I always liked that, just those little touches. And this is more to my reasoning of why I think Hermione belongs in Gryffindor. And it's actually funny, someone else brought it up in this novel of it's surprising you're in Gryffindor because her grades are so good. Some student actually mentions it, but. This book has more of Hermione being a badass for a good cause and not just being, you know, like a good student and sticking to her studies. And I understand why the movie made it there to Serum and Cho that revealed the DA, but, you know, they probably just didn't want to introduce another character and go into that whole explanation. It would have taken up more screen time than just, oh, here's a face you know, and Harry and Cho have to break up anyway, so this is a very concise way of doing it. But yeah. that was a really cool moment for Hermione, was her bewitching the list, so that girl ended up having sneak across her forehead. Like, I loved that. I mean, they made, the, they made all of that really concise, that, and Dumbledore's leave was extremely concise in the movie. I like the fact that he had to knock everyone out and he stayed around to explain things before he left. And the movie is just sort of like, Fox, come to me, will disappear. And then, bam, they leave. In the book, like, the, there's that one member of the Order of the Phoenix that's high up in the ministry that he has to knock out as well. And he was like, he kind of like apologized for it. He was like, I had to do it, otherwise it'd be conspicuous. Which also somewhat didn't make sense because... I think he told everyone to act as though they were knocked out. So he didn't really have to knock out that guy. He just did it for the fun of it. You do whatever you want, Dumbledore. That was pretty damn cool. And one thing the movie also really handled well was the showdown with Dumbledore and Voldemort. Oh, that's probably the best. Because that scene. Yeah. Holy shit. That's probably the best uh, wizard fight in the entire series. Although I'll argue they still also fell prey to this same special effect they use when Harry and Voldemort's wand first link up in the fourth movie. And they're going to keep that up every time Harry and Voldemort duel, but they use this also for Voldemort and Dumbledore, which just makes no sense. Yeah, because it's, cause it's supposed to be the, the, the sister wands yeah. or brother wands. I don't know if it's sister wands or brother wands, but, but I did like how... Dumbledore was like trying to force Harry to stay back like he f I think he like throws Harry back at one point in the movie and it was a really nice touch showing how protective and and powerful Dumbledore is that he can maintain this fight with Voldemort while also protecting Harry and I think uh, in the book he had bewitched the fountain yeah characters yeah to help but that, yeah, they threw that in really well in the movie of how he just jerked him back, but it did break his concentration for a moment, and, like, the ball of water with Voldemort fell, but that was still so cool because he was willing to risk, you know, having the upper hand in the duel to protect Harry. Mm-hmm. Good old Dumbledore. I just... <laughs> I will say it is it is a bit sad 
not seeing Dobby in all of these because, you know, they didn't use him in the fourth one, so they couldn't yeah. use him in this one. And, like, he's such a... He grows into, like, a good character, just sort of always there to protect Harry and whatnot. I think we see him again in the seventh movie, if I remember correctly, the last one, but kind of just throwing in and not necessary after they left him out. Yeah, plus in the book, isn't it that he finds the room of requirement because he's trying to stash drunk Winky, which yeah. is really cute. Yeah. Yeah, Is it, it's this one where he's, like, getting all the hats from Hermione, right? Yeah, she keeps yeah, leaving them out, and Dobby's just taking I them I love instead. it so much. It's like, that's such a great visual, <laughs> with Dobby just with all of these hats stacked on top of one another. I usually don't like the artwork in these books, and the, at least in the American versions, but I did like the drawing of Dobby with all the hats. It was it was adorable. Yeah. Oh, and you know, shout out to Helena Bonham Carter and those goddamn cheekbones. God, I love that woman. Woo. I love that woman. She's no longer with Tim Burton, and I'm like, hey, I'll become the new power couple director actor. I'll direct movies. You be in them. <laughs> we can do this, Helena Bonham Carter. Call me up. We got this going. If anyone's got contact, contact her for me. I got some ideas. <laughs> we are not above using this podcast for our own <laughs> thirsty needs. <laughs> I've loved her since I was a kid. Like, I'm like, that's such a beautiful woman. Like, she she has a different look, and I love it. Like, she, it just works for her. And Dear Helena, I've always been your biggest fan. <laughs> I'm your fan. biggest fan. You're beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think uh, those are all my notes. Can I do random general notes really Yeah, yeah, quickly? yeah, I'm all for that. General notes, period. Da, 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 da. Yeah, so we've been thinking about taking this to the YouTube. We might post the episodes. Um, I've also added the extra work of potentially doing per-episode artwork. See, I have to say it now, so I'm committed, and I can't back out later. <laughs> and also... Uh, re-listening to these is absolute hell because I have to hear my own voice and I don't recognize the way I talk in podcast form at all. It doesn't feel like me whatsoever. Oh, at least you don't have to edit them and you're listening to all the things that I end up taking out <laughs> and like listening to the stupid pauses that we do and I'm like, nope, I'm going to shorten that so it sounds better to an audience. Uh, so I'm cringing at the polished product. <laughs> you're cringing at the polished product. That's my, that's my art. That's my art, Andrea. <laughs> It's not your fault, it's me. <laughs> God, I can't stand myself. I hate myself. <laughs> oh, God. But, yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this, we all, we have an Instagram going on these days. I uh, don't know if we'll break into other social media, but if you're listening to this, we have an Instagram at Illiterati at Confirmed. Illiterati? And, What's up? And, uh, yeah, we we might do some other stuff. We might do some merch and prizes sometime you can write to us illiterati confirmed at gmail.com oh yeah i forgot we have that i'll write to us just to make me feel better <laughs> yeah send us requests notes tell us our voices do suck whatever you want hey we appreciate it all merch ideas no we got the best merch ideas we don't need them <laughs> so since i haven't done it yet here are the scores of Harry Potter 5. <laughs> Harry had negative 75 in last place. God damn Ron Harry. Ron comes in second place with negative 10. And Hermione 
comes in first place with a positive five. Way to go, Hermione. Five points. Oh, don't forget, Miss Luna Lovegood. All we know are those 50 points she gets at the end from McGonagall. Oh, yeah. So, congrats, Luna. You have stolen our hearts. Yep. Forever. What a dreamy, dreamy girl. So join us next week. Where we're obviously going to be talking about Adelis Huxley's A Brave New World. Because we're just going to go with this dystopian, <laughs> authoritarian... Stop it, because we will cover these at some point. Oh, yeah, I know. Because there's a horrible adaption of A Brave New World now. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but, yeah, that. we'll be... <laughs> Boy, I want to torture us. I'm here to torture us. I'm going to make us watch the worst... I'm going to re- make us read the best books, but the worst movies. Because for some reason, the greatest literary novels have the worst adaptions. Let's talk about why Fahrenheit 451 never got a proper movie. We'll discuss. That's very true. I haven't seen the new one. There was like a new one a few years ago, and I'm actually really want to reread it just because we need to see how bad that is. Same. But uh, yeah, we'll obviously be watching uh, or re- watching and reading The Half-Blood Prince. Then we'll have one more, and then we'll be going on to other things. But give us grace as we do Harry Potter 7, because there are two goddamn movies to watch for that one. But we'll try to be timely in our delivery. Yeah, I forgot that it's two parts. Dear Lord, what have we done? You seem to be laboring under the delusion that I'm going to... What was the phrase? Come quietly. Well, I can tell you this. I have no intention of going to Azkaban. Enough of this. 